the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, disgraced groundhog flees angry crowds to join talking rats in Thorn Valley, karma apples and blackberry shams. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, we have part one of a very cool two-part interview with neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts. Ted talks about his new nonfiction article on the Bain.com website, Are We Just Wired Differently?, which pretty much is all about that question. Are personality and behavioral differences due to our brain structure? And what about those studies like left brain, right brain, conservative, liberal brain, and zombies eating brains? No, not not the latter. Uh, we'll have to have Ted back for that discussion. We also have a nice little segment on new Bain editorial assistants, both of whom started off as interns here at the Bain office, plus a current intern talking about her experience working here in Science Fiction Story Central. And in keeping with Bain tradition of having at least one other person in the company having their name, these are Christopher Chifani and Christopher Rocchio and Bain intern Rachel Mintel. Fun stuff, but first the news. Speaking of Christopher Rocchio, who's now in charge of our social media, we have a lot more going on with the Bain social media these days. We've got our Twitter feed twitting away, or tweeting away, or whatever it is, and lots more meaty posting on Facebook, including new weekly contests and book giveaways. Plus, we are starting to populate the Bain YouTube channel with a few book trailers and with another way to listen to these podcasts. So, yay! There's a contest that's in full swing right now, by the way. In Hell Hath No Fury, part of David Weber's multiverse series, a portal through the multiverse pits two societies against one another. One wails magic while the other relies on science. It's the science fiction fantasy genre battle royale, which got us thinking here in a war between science and magic. Which side would you choose? Let us know your answer and why in a short paragraph for a chance to win a signed copy of Hell Hath No Fury by David Weber and Linda Evans. And by the way, a new entry in the multiverse series will be out in March, which is The Road to Hell by David Weber and Joel Presby. So look for that. Those contest details can be found on the Bain.com main website. We are here today with um, two relatively new employees here at Bain we want to talk to. And as keeping with the Bain tradition of everyone having exactly the same name, as you know, I'm Tony Daniel, and Tony Weisskopf is, is the uh, publisher, and we have so many Davids and Daves that it's, uh, it's impossible to keep up. Uh, we have two Christophers here. Uh, Christopher Chifani. Or Chifani? Uh, close enough. Okay. And Christopher Rocchio. 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 <laughs> and they Got both it. have Italian last names to boot, or something like that. Um, yeah, we are everywhere. Or maybe it's Romanian. I don't know. Definitely Italian. Uh, the Same Adriatic name. side of the boot. 
Oh, other side, Naples. So, oh, so you guys should probably be fighting constantly. Probably the... go get a poniard and uh-huh. stab you. With Who it. will get trade with Venice? Me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, before, all right. So, what is uh, Christopher Schifani? Schifani. How do you say your last name? Schifani. Schifani. How do you? Um, what is? What is your position here? Um, so I sign all my emails with editorial assistant, but I also do a lot of, uh, shipping clerk duties. That was what I started out as, and that's still the bulk of my job. Yeah. So, and Christopher Rocchio, you are editorial assistant also, and... Uh, Tony Weisskopf told me that I was an editorial and marketing assistant, Uh which is what I've since been signing my emails as. Uh, mostly, I, I spend most of my time managing the social media pages now. So Um, before we get into what you do um and by the way we also have rachel mentel with us here who is currently an intern here at bay i'm going to ask her about the intern experience in a moment um so both of you guys started around here at least as as interns right yeah um, and christopher c uh you you're we, we get a lot of interns from nc state um which is in raleigh and um but you are not from NC State. Uh, no, I went to school in Greensboro, and I became an intern by talking to you, Tony, and um, some of the other editors here at a convention that the, was run by the Science Fiction Club in Greensboro. Oh, cool. Yeah, I remember when you, I was like, sure, give us a call. <laughs> so, and you did. Um, and you're a great intern. That's, the, that's one of the qualities we have for actually hiring someone. So, Rachel, pay attention. Greatness. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yes, that's right. Greatness. Um, absolute uh, awesomeness is, is required. So, and um, now, uh, not only do you do mail clerk stuff, uh, but also you are, uh, Christopher C., um, one of the judges, or, or not the judge, but the, the actual filterer on our uh, fantasy short story contest, right? Yes, uh, the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award, which is um, a short uh, short fiction award, uh, no more than 8,000 words of adventure fantasy of any fantasy genre. Uh, we, I've seen things with dragons. I've seen things from the point of view of dragons. I've seen uh, vampires. I've seen zombies. I've seen steampunk. I've seen all kinds of a whole mix of things. Um, our winners have mostly been uh, sort of high fantasy for the last two years, but we've seen uh, one of our runners up was a really interesting um, sort of modern urban fantasy set in an Asian setting that was really good. Yeah. So Christopher um, slogs through the entries. Um, and it is a slog. Yeah. You did a, a great several really excellent um i what i'll do is um sometimes the slush that gray passes on to me i'll sometimes have the interns read and do reader reports for me um so i can get several viewpoints on it um and you did some excellent reader reports well thank you back back in the day and so um we thought um you know that this is perfect uh perfect job for you to take on um, and, and then you pass on your picks for the best to the judges and also take part in the judging. So, um, and that's well underway. When is the deadline for the... 
uh, on April 1st, and it's not an April Fool's joke. It's uh, the midnight of the start of April. Uh, so get those stories in. And there's um, is there a page at the... Yes, we have on our website, if you go to our, um, I think it's Bain Communities or something like that. That's not exactly right. But it's our, our, our fan community drop down at the top, on, a, on the top banner of our website. There will be a, uh, a section for awards. And all of the information for the Bain Fantasy Award, as well as our Science Fiction Award, which just closed for submissions, the Jim Bain Memorial Award, um, are both listed there, uh, as well as information about the year's best uh, award voting. Yeah. So um, a little bit about your background. You have a musical background. You come from a musical family. Don't I you? do. I didn't um, study music in school, but I've been playing violin since I was five or six. I didn't know that. Uh, and both of my parents are professional musicians. Uh, my mom plays flute and my dad plays oboe. And they were jobbing musicians around the Chicago area. Cool, cool. So, uh, Christopher Rocchio, Rocky, sorry. I keep doing that. It's fine, everyone does. Well, it's spelled weird. <laughs> I can't help it. So you recently graduated from NC State. In December, yeah. Um, and you were here as an intern from NC State. It's part of their internship program. Since the last January, yeah, almost a year. What did you major in there? Uh, I was an English major uh, with a focus in rhetoric uh, as opposed to creative writing or anything. I uh, Did you uh, – where's your interest in science fiction? That's all I've read voluntarily. Um <laughs> Since I was literate, really. Um, I mean, Fantasy 2, obviously, but if it didn't have a wizard or a spaceship in it, I generally would pass it over. Yeah. Uh, so you must love Star Wars because it has both. Uh, yes, I do, now that you mention it. Uh, you know what? I checked out the emo uh, Kylo Ren. The did you? It was pretty funny. Was it not perfect? Pretty funny. Pretty oh, my God. Uh, my favorite thing to come out of that was... Um, the lonely Luke Twitter interacting with the emo Kylo Ren Twitter. <laughs> that and was really good. Going that back was, and forth. That's so meta. It's, it's I don't know. Well, that's what Twitter's for. Kind of perform, perform a black hole of, of nerdiness that'll suck us all in. It happens a lot with uh, with blockbuster movies. They did one with The Hobbit, too, that was really funny. <coughs> so, um, what, what, what do you do here at Bain? Oh, primarily, I've been running our social media channels um, or, or trying to get them online if they aren't yet. Uh, I've noticed the Twitter feed picked up quite a bit. Yeah, I, uh, I, I do really like Twitter, actually. I, I, uh, I, I like its sort of uh, brief sort of mayfly quality. You could sort of just say a thing and interact with people very quickly as opposed to being a more involved process like Facebook is. Uh, so we have been using that a lot more. We've also started um, using Facebook a lot more than we were as well. We've been trying to get a post every weekday. Uh, and we have started also giving away books, you know, so pay attention here. We're giving away books uh, on the Facebook page every week that we don't have a newsletter coming out, uh, which is about every other week, but there will be a couple times in the year where we'll get two weeks in a row we're giving a book away. Uh, all you have to do is uh, find your favorite quote from an from the author whose book we are giving away it doesn't have to be from the same book that we're giving away but just from that author generally and we will sort through that and pick whichever quote we like the most and uh you will win a book so do use the facebook page super cool and yeah um more is going on facebook more is coming out on twitter and um, i think we finally got the social media um, in hand around here. We're going to also start looking into trying to find more content for YouTube. That's going to be a bit more of a struggle 
Uh, but between that and maybe Pinterest or Instagram. Cool book trailer that my daughter did for my. Daughter. That is up there. Yeah. I'm gonna start putting the podcasts up there too, just so they're in an extra place. Oh, cool! Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, um so uh, you worked your way through college as a waiter. I did, and still do for one more weekend. <laughs> yeah. Um, and all that time you're writing. Yes. Yeah. I also I did too much in college at the same time. Yeah. Um. There was a minute where I was a full-time student, working about 40 hours a week, and here interning and writing. Um, I don't know when I slept. Mm. I can't remember. Well, you just sold a, uh, you just sold a three-book series. Four-book series. Four-book series. Um, to, uh, to, to Daw. To Daw. Yeah. Um, and it's science fiction? It is. It's a, it's a space <laughs> opera. Uh, it leans a bit in the... Uh, Star Wars, Wizards and Spaceships direction, but not quite as, uh, not quite as strongly. There's no force. What's um, the name of this first novel? Right now, it's the Murdered Son, S-U-N. But they keep talking it's about one. It's to say. It's like the rural juror. Yeah, that's why we're changing it. Mm. No, I don't know what it's going to end up as. Uh, I have never been very good at titles. Um, I would not pretend to be otherwise. Um, hmm. I'll have to think. All right. Without knowing what the book is about whatsoever. <laughs> Something. That's what my. That's really great. So you're you're I, on your way. Uh, uh, that's pretty great. I yes. Do you think that working at Bain gave you a, any kind of a kickstart that way? Um, I don't. You were going to do it anyway. I mean, I was going to do it anyway. I uh, I'd been trying very hard to keep quiet about it, just so that I didn't. I didn't want to be the intern who came in and, you know, not being a paid intern was trying to get in through the back door, you know, like, hey, guys, I wrote a book. So I've been trying to keep that as separate from work as possible. Just Yeah, you are annoyingly humble. It's very annoying to me. Um, I, I find it in, in its way um, sort of, uh, what's the opposite of humble? Arrogant? Arrogant, yes. It's arrogantly humble. I didn't know that was even possible. Well, it's um, like the reverse that. of the humble brag. That's right. Um, it's like, well, I happen to sell three book, four book series to Daw. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't just didn't know, want I to be... I didn't want to get anybody mad at me, so I didn't mention it. No, that, that was the reason. I. Uh, Who the heck would get mad at you? I, I don't know. Me? Hank? Jim? Maybe. Tony. Maybe. No, no one got mad at me. Everyone's been really nice yeah. about it. Well, we're um, very happy for you. So. No. So, um, both of you are interns. Rachel, um, what have you done? As an, what did you do when you're an intern at Bain? Uh, um, pretty much everything. What did you do today? For today, I worked on transmittals for two upcoming novels. I'm supposed to be editing, editing audio right now, but mm-hmm. that's not really happening. You're creating it instead. I'm creating audio, you I might guess. Be editing this so I probably will be, and I will probably have to cringe listening to my own voice. Oh, that is the worst. It's the worst thing ever. <coughs> so I'm very excited about that. But I've done everything from readers' guides to readers' reports to yeah, Rachel wrote tip some sheets. excellent, excellent readers' guides to John Ringo's. Um, um, you know the, the name of the zombie Black Tide, <laughs> Un, uh, Black Black Tide, Tide Rising, Rising. Yeah. 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 And you you weren't particularly a fan of that genre before, but you read Ringo's books and you really liked them, right? I've never read a zombie book before, or even really seen zombie movies, so it was a new experience. But it was really good. I was unexpectedly surprised that I enjoyed it that much. Well, didn't John say that he didn't particularly like zombies until he thought, well, here's how to do them right. 
That sounds like something he would say. Yeah, I think that was the his motivation. Of course, by reputation, one never knows. Ringo's motivations are are deep, an and enigma, subternal, sub subternal, um, in some some place of the imagination that that only John can go and uh, bring out these amazing things. So, um, well, uh, just wanted to introduce you guys to, to the podcast audience. Um, both of you have helped out with podcasts before and will continue in the future, I hope, um, as long as you both shall live. Well, it's actually my second time on the podcast because back when I was an intern, you had me and my other interns at the time on the podcast as interns. Yeah, we did. So, if you call in here uh, to the office, you'll probably speak to Christopher. He's the guy that answers the phone to Christopher. One of them. Yes, one of us will answer the phone. You can just say, and Hi, you will never know which one. <laughs> it will be right. Oh. Unless you have a better ability to pick pick voices apart from each other than I do. Yeah. So we're very happy to have you guys here. We're, you're um, you're both awesome. Well, thanks, and Tony. We're happy to have you too, Rachel. You're Thank you. becoming awesome just by being around us. <laughs> it's infectious. Living the dream. That's Living the right. dream. Right. So thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. All right, back to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is part one of a two-part interview with neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts discussing his Bain.com nonfiction article, Are We Just Wired Differently? Part two and the conclusion of the interview will be available next time on the podcast. want to welcome Ted Roberts to the podcast, a.k.a. Dr. Rob Hampson, a.k.a. to me at least, Speaker to Lab Animals, uh, which is what I, I really call him in my mind. Hello. Uh, hi, Tony. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. Ted Roberts is the pseudonym of neuroscience researcher Robert E. Hampson, Ph.D., whose cutting-edge research includes work on the effects of drugs, radiation, and disease on memory function and the development of a neuroprosthetic to restore damaged memory function. His interest in public education and brain awareness has led him to the goal of writing accurate yet enjoyable brain science via blogging, short fiction, and what we're talking about today, nonfiction science articles for the science fiction and fantasy community. Ted Roberts' other nonfiction articles for Bain.com are available in the Bain.com free nonfiction collections uh, of 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, and this year. 2016. Obviously, we've had you <laughs> had a lot of great uh, Ted Roberts essays on the website. This month at Bain.com, we are featuring a really fascinating nonfiction article by speaker to Lab Animals, Ted Roberts, um, called Are We Just Wired Differently? Before we go further with the point of the article, you mentioned in the first um, section neurological experimental work with um, rhesus monkeys. You talk about that. What uh, animal subjects you use. I'm curious to know what kind of animals are neurological experiments carried out on. Um, are some better animals better for examining different hypotheses than others? And um, what do you do in your lab? Well, there are a number of animals that are used for studies uh, of the brain. Most commonly, uh, lab mice and lab rats, uh, they can learn memory tasks. They can learn to go forage for food in a particular place. They can learn to follow a maze to get to that uh, food if it's hidden from them. And in 
So doing, we can actually look at what parts of the brain are involved in spatial navigation, what are involved in the memory of where they are supposed to go, and they can, we can also look at different things like what types of sensory information are important to finding their way. Now, lab rats, lab mice are useful for some things, but you can't talk to them. You can't say, this is what I want you to do. Ideally, you would do that with a human subject, but there's only so many things you can do in terms of being able to look at the brain function. Usually, you have to use either an EEG recording on the skull, on the scalp surface, or you would use a technique such as uh, one of the imaging, one of the um, uh, magnetic resonance imaging type techniques with a human. There are a number of animals in between that have been studied. Basically, if you can get an animal into a laboratory setting, somebody somewhere has studied it. Most of the time with an animal such as a rhesus monkey, we do a lot of behavioral work because they can be taught to do experiments that are similar to what a human would do. And then again, we use a number of the human type of uh, uh, recording methods to look at their brain function, which is the imaging, which is the EEG recordings. And sometimes we can do some very fine electrode wire recordings from different brain areas as well. So in terms of, you know, what it's like for a normal lab animal, we treat them very well. We, we have to because a mistreated animal is not going to give good results in any type of brain function test that we might want to do. So they end up getting treated very well. We have on-staff veterinarians. We have technicians who care for them every day. And we have to, we have to keep a very close eye on the animal health and how everything uh, is worked out. So for lab animals, yes, we do some of that study. But we, uh, uh, for the type of things we're talking about today, a lot of that is we can only look at humans because there are certain functions that only humans will do. So the title of the article is, we are, are we just wired differently? Question mark. The question is in reference to brains and behavior, personality, I guess, specific talents. The first thing you tell us is about the two areas in a human brain that are either much more developed or missing from other primate brains. What are these? Well, these are the abilities to handle language, primarily. The, we think nothing of the fact that we can pick up a book, we can pick up a piece of paper, and we can read, and we can communicate with other people. So if, as I'm sitting here discussing with you, I'm speaking, you're listening, but we have the exact same type of communication as if I were writing and you were reading. And that's a unique feature of the human brain, the ability to understand language and the ability to then communicate that out to another person, whether it's written, whether it's uh, in some form of symbol, or whether it is a spoken language such as what we're doing right now. There are Primarily at this point, though, we're going to make the distinction between humans. We've learned that great apes can communicate. Now, these are gorillas. These are orangutans, chimpanzees, uh, bonobos, the fairly intelligent apes. We, we draw a dividing line uh, between the great apes and the other primates, such as a rhesus monkey, a squirrel monkey, uh, a capuchin, such as that, because Really, they don't have the communication ability. There are, we've had instances of gorillas and chimpanzees that have been taught sign language. 
have been taught symbolic communication languages. So when we talk about human and human-like, um, yes, we're kind of ignoring the great apes for this purpose. And, and one good reason for doing that is because we don't actually do experimentation on great apes, simply because the communication and the implied intelligence there. How do you say Wernicke, Wernicke's area? There's two it, places in the Wernicke's brain. Wernicke's area, that's right. Yeah. What are those two areas? Well, what I normally tell people when they're trying to imagine the brain is take the right hand with the palm facing away from them, have their fingers all together, and the thumb is the temporal lobe, the tips of the fingers are the frontal lobe, and the back at the wrist of the hand is the occipital lobe. Now, right at the junction of where the, the junction would be between your thumb and your first finger is a fold where most of our hearing, our auditory senses take place, and where the, and just above that is Wernicke's area. Wernicke's area is a specialized area that we know gets information projected into it from the hearing, from vision, and from a number, and also from memory, so that it is very well positioned to being able to get all the information needed to read or hear language. So a lot of what we know about what these areas do comes from unfortunate individuals who've had damage. They may have an epileptic seizure, they may have a stroke, they may have a, uh, a head injury that damages that particular brain area. They lose the ability to process language. That means they can see words on a page, but they don't know what they mean. They may still be able to speak, but they would have trouble understanding somebody speaking to them. So Wernicke's area is at that location. As you move a little bit forward in the brain, there is another area called Broca's area. And Broca's area is responsible for speech. It's responsible for making sure that you can have coherent words and sentences come out. And what's really interesting about it is if you look at the other functions of the brain is that you find it's very, very near to the muscle control areas that control the mouth, the tongue, the vocal cords, and even the diaphragm. So it's very closely tied with the ability to make speech. It's very unfortunate that a common stroke symptom is the loss of the ability to speak. This may be a person who can write messages out. They just can't speak it or they just can't speak it coherently. And one of the things we know from a lot of study is that individuals have damage right at this one particular area of the brain, and that's the area called Broca's. Hmm. So this is the way we are wired differently from other animals. I mean, this is like a human distinction. And... That's right. So this is where we know there's different wiring, where we know that there is a distinction between a complex brain that thinks and speaks and reads and writes and does, creates music such as a human and other brains from animals that seem fairly complex but don't have those specialization areas and so they don't have language, at least not in the form that, Amer that, that, that anyone 
and I started to say in the form that Americans would uh, would recognize it, and that's true because there are other types of communication in other cultures, but this is um, it, at least it's not communication in a way that a human being communicates with other human beings. Yeah. Well, um, before we get on to more in the article, I just want to ask you one more animal question, which is a personal curmudgeonly aside, since you know how I feel about people who think dolphins can talk. Do you know, what can dolphins talk? I mean, you know, what is the state of the Wernicke's area and the Broca's? Uh, do these exist in dolphin uh, brains? There is something that is not as complex, but similar in, in processing in the dolphin brain. Uh, and by the way, it's in the gorilla and chimpanzee brain as well. And... What they don't have is they don't have a Broca's area. So there's a uh, there's another distinction as well. We're going to later talk about uh, the left brain versus the right brain, and one of the distinctions that you see in the dolphin brain from a human brain is that it is not lateralized. It doesn't have certain functions on one side of the brain that are not on the other side of the brain. So uh, so in a sense, there is not a Wernicke's area the way it's defined in the human in the dolphins. So they may have an ability to communicate. It's not the same language as what we think of uh, with human communication. Yeah. So, um, really, dolphins don't have bilateral brains? They do have bilateral brains. It's just they don't have bilateral functions. One of the very unusual features of the dolphin brain is the ability for the brain to sleep one half at a time. Wow. So, when, because a dolphin is constantly swimming and must always come to the surface to breathe, it would not be possible to put the whole brain to sleep at one time. So dolphins actually sleep half their brain at a time, and the half that's asleep is, has all of the EEG function that we normally associate with a sleeping animal of any sort, and the side that's awake has all of the EEG function that we normally associate with an awake brain, and yet it controls all of the body and all of the body functions at once, which means that there's not the same left-right distinction in the dolphin that there is in the human. Hmm. That is such a setup for a great science fiction story. I don't know if it's been done. I can't think of any. <laughs> My God, what a great idea. Um, there's some pretty neat stuff with respect to um, uplifting dolphins and chimpanzees and gorillas and the like that oh, has yeah. been done. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mr. Brin and, and uh, Dr. Brin, I guess. So let's talk about the article. The first wiring issue you talk about is the left brain, right brain dichotomy that we've all heard about in pop culture. Are we like a decade behind us general public people um, in our understanding of this? What's, what is it now? What do people think? What do you neuroscientists think of this? Well, one of the things that we see is that there is less of an issue of left brain and right brain. One of the things we see is that there is not so much a uniform distinction between left brain and right brain. Typically, from psychology, 
the left brain, which controls the right half of the body, by the way, is the site where we see the Wernicke's area and the Broca's area, which give us language and communications. If we look on the right side of the brain in those same two areas, they don't have the exact same language and speech functions that we see in left brain. So we know that there are distinctions between the left brain and the right brain. And because of the way the body is wired to the brain through the neurons, through the spinal cord and all of the nerves that connect to the muscles and the sensory information going back, information that either is from or controls the right side of the body goes to the left half of the brain. Everything that controls the left side of the body goes to the right half of the brain. Well, left brain, right brain concepts come from right-handed people and left-handed people to start with. And the fact that the precision of language and communication and speech comes from the left side of the brain, then nonverbal, non-language uh, items, more symbolic items, must be coming from the right side of the brain. So in psychology, there have been a number of different tests that have said, okay, what happens, where's the processing, and as the technology has developed to be able to actually look non-invasively, in other words, just with an imaging, either electrodes on the scalp or sitting in an MRI machine or, you know, or an equivalent, the ability to look at what part of the brain is active, we see that for precision type of processes and information and skills, the left side of the brain tends to be more active. But for the more creative uh, types of processes, the right side of the brain appears to be more active. So a painter is said to be using the right side of their brain. A writer who is creating a fantastic or science fictional world and entertaining and doing all sorts of imagination and development is said to be using the right side of their brain, whereas a mathematician, an accountant, um, a scientist such as myself when we're in the laboratory doing very precise experiments is said to be using the left side of their brain. What all of this, what we have found, though, is that while that may be the customary state of the human brain, it doesn't have to stay that way. And it's really much more of a mix. And the reason it's much more of a mix is because running between the two halves of the brain is a large communications channel called the corpus callosum. And the corpus callosum takes information from one half of the brain and transports it to the other half of the brain, usually the exact same structure, the exact same position in brain. And because the two are constantly communicating, there's no real dominance of one half of the brain over the other. So we may look at a person. I have a favorite comic uh, who refers to her husband as left brain. Uh, this person, Jeannie Robinson, says that she is the creative person who goes out and speaks and tells humorous stories. She's the right brain, and her husband has no sense of humor. He's the uh, mathematically uh, inclined person who is ruled by logic and rationale. She calls him left brain. And it's funny 
it's it's very true when you look at people who have these characteristics. But what we have found is that it's not just one half of the brain that's active. It's the the whole brain is active, and it's just that there are you can't have the entire brain active for every single process that's that's going on. So there's little centers within the brain that process particular types of information. There's an area for memory. There's an area for prediction. This is what I expect to happen. There are areas that say, okay, what decision should I make right now? And those tend to be distributed left and right. And we find out that it's not really cleanly a left and right division. So the left brain and right brain thing is kind of metaphorical for conceptual and, and, and logic-based uh, processes that are found throughout the brain. But there is some basis in the wiring? There's some basis in the wiring, but what we are now finding is that there's much more of a mosaic. It's a continuum, and there are some individuals who have much more activity in their left brain, some individuals who have much more activity in their right brain, and most everybody is somewhere in between where there's a distribution of activity um, left and right, and some may be a little more left or a little more right, but with all of these functions, and it's, it's, it's specific to individuals, it's specific to the type of thing you're doing. If you are creatively writing something, yes, you're you're using the creative centers of your brain, but you're also using the precision communication centers, and you may be using, if you're handwriting, it may heavily involve um, just the right hand motor control, muscle control part of the brain. Or on the other hand, if you're typing it, you're going to be using both hands. So it's always a mosaic, so much more of a metaphor. The other reason why we tend to, we as neuroscientists tend to discourage looking at the brain as left or right brain, is one of the things we know is that if there is damage, then there can very easily, and, and I suppose that's a relative term, but, but the brain can recover function by using other parts of the brain, other areas to take over function. And that is seen most commonly in cases of stroke and head injury. You bring up in the article the, the extreme case of, what is it, hemispherectomy for young children, which is really scary sounding. But It is, and it's a case where due to a genetic or defect or an injury, the children have epilepsy and they have seizures, and they originate in one part of the brain, and they spread very heavily uh, through one half of the brain. Generally speaking, you will find that there is a lot of cell and tissue damage in that half, so that the best way to handle a uh, treatment is to remove the half of the brain. And yet, those children grow up developmentally into their teens and into adulthood with normal brain function because the other half of the brain can take over. That's crazy. The, this plasticity is built in. It is. It is. And we used to think that we were born with every brain cell that we would ever have. And that was because 
early scientists noticed that brain cells did not go through the mitosis, the cell division and multiplication that most of the other cells in the body do. But what we now know is that there are cells in various regions of the brain that are stem cells. They are um, what we would consider to be normal dividing and multiplying cells that turn into the type of neurons that can take over functions. And so a lot of what happens as we learn, a lot of what happens as we age, and whenever we recover from some sort of brain damage, is taken over by cells that can grow into those functions. Well, let's move on to the next uh, sort of section of, of the essay. You looked at the... Um rather infamous University of London uh, liberal versus conservative brain study that was done a few years ago. Um, when I heard about this from the start, it seemed like an obvious case of confirmation bias to me. Um, what are the findings and why are they perhaps misinterpreted? What's happened since then? Or Well, what I'll start with saying is I've read the original paper and I've read the news releases that came from it. And the... Uh, infamy with respect to conservative and liberal brains is something that was interpreted by the press releases, much more so than by the uh, researchers who did it. What they researchers did was to take uh, a number of college students at University College London and have them fill out a questionnaire that discussed a number of things, including their political views. Do The question would say, do you consider yourself politically conservative or politically liberal? Would you consider you are on the right or on the left or somewhere in the middle? And then they use that information to look at scans of these people's brains. Now, there were two types of study done. One is simply to take a high-resolution structural scan, which allows the scientists to go in and say, okay, here's a particular brain area. How big is it? And we can tell that because different types of brain areas, because they're connected differently, because they're constructed differently, they're going to show up differently on an MRI. So it's possible to go in and recognize areas and say, how large is this? And then another study was done as well, and some data melded in with this that actually looked at how active these brain areas were with different tasks. What they found was that in the students who self-identified as conservatives, they had a larger and more active amygdala. Amygdala is in the temporal lobe. That's in the thumb uh, area from my original analogy of looking at the brain like uh, the outline of your hand. And the amygdala is also right next to the hippocampus, and hippocampus is an area that's very, very important for processing and making new memories. And what the, uh, the students who self-identified as liberals had much more activity and larger structure in the cingulate cortex. The cingulate cortex is actually at the top of the brain, folded inward. Since the brain has two different halves, there's actually brain area on the inner surface where those two halves come together, and that's where the cingulate is. And the cingulate is an area 
According to the interpretation made most commonly from this study, the cingulate is associated with behavioral flexibility, the ability to change your mind, the ability to look at something that has happened and say, oh, I thought it was going to be A, and it turned out to be B. Okay, now I understand. The amygdala is most definitely known for processing emotion. People who have damage to the amygdala have uh, difficulty with either control or expressing emotion. So the interpretation that came out in most of the press articles was liberal brains are more flexible and conservative brains are ruled by emotion. The problem with that from the view of a neuroscientist... Particularly fear was the statement that you kept hearing. Really fear, right. The problem from the perspective of a neuroscientist is that those are the most simplistic explanations of what those brain areas do. The cingulate is used to, uh, yes, it has a lot to do with behavioral flexibility, but the reason is because in that area of the brain and in connections that go forward into the decision-making areas of the brain, one of the pieces of information processed is expectancy. Did what I expect actually occurred? And so the perfect example would be a gambler. A gambler goes into a poker game, a roulette, or a crafts game and has an expectancy that they will have a certain number of winning hands or winning spins of the wheel. And in fact, in roulette, the gambler says, I expect that the number 42 will come up, something to that effect. And then when the hand is played or the wheel is spun, whatever the outcome is has to be compared with the expectation. And more often than not, the expectation is wrong. And there are successful gamblers who are really good at prediction, and they use all sorts of mathematical processes and, and analyzing their other players and so on and so forth. But the cingulate is the area that matches the expectation to the actual outcome so that a decision can be made. Well, the amygdala is not simply just fear. The amygdala is emotional content, and it's also very highly involved in historical memory. I know that if I did this in the past, this is, the, this is what always happened. Uh, if I touch the hot burner, I will get burned. If I, uh, if I lick the flagpole on a sub-zero day, my tongue will get stuck. That's the type of memory that has an emotional context because it's associated with fear or anxiety or pain or something else like that, a lot of our historical memory is tied into emotion. And so the amygdala is very important to memory. So now what happens is you could, if you were uh, being cynical, say that uh, in the liberal brain, because of the hyperactivity or the greater activity of the cingulate, it's because they're always having to uh, 
change their expectancy because what happened what they expected to happen didn't happen and they're constantly having to process that information whereas in the conservative brain they're always comparing the past and the future and making predictions and and uh, basing their actions on what they know has historically happened in the past so there's it's way too easy to misinterpret which is one reason why I always suggest to people don't go just with the press releases on a scientific study. Go back and read the scientific study. Your point is that either of these interpretations could both be true because, or neither, because they're not really based on a deeper understanding of, of what the study showed. That's right. The study showed that there was a difference. The study itself didn't really make an interpretation, and the interpretation was left to the press agents who, who wrote their articles that came afterward. And again, it's a difference because these are two brain areas that are processing two different types of information, but all of it can converge on the ability to make a decision. And so we don't really, we, we have to try to avoid the simplest explanation. Yeah. So our, uh, our, our guys here want to ask questions about this. Christopher, what was your Oh, hey, I just have a quick question on that one. Um, with this study, there was a lot of emphasis on the relative size of areas of the brain. And I remember reading once, and I can't for the life of me recall where it was, that there was some evidence to suggest that the human brain over the past few generations has actually been shrinking sounds bad, but getting smaller in the sense that it's trying to, like, cut the fat, so to speak, uh, become more efficient. Is this emphasis on relative size a misapplication of public attention on this in the first place, or does size even matter, I guess, is the, the easy question. I think the best explanation is going to be that the size is going to be different in different individuals anyway. Okay. Um, that the size probably is not a major concern uh, as far as there, there's a very interesting feature where we know with certain animals that store food for the winter, that the area of the brain that processes that type of memory actually increases in size as these animals, typically birds, are storing their food, and then it decreases in size during the winter when they're retrieving all of the food that they've stored. So there's some indication that size matters and that greater size means greater activity but there are also other animals that store food that don't go through this type of change. Squirrels, for example, um, their uh, hippocampus and their memory processing areas don't increase uh, during the fall and don't decrease during the winter. So there's so we have two in different indications that say size matters and another that says size doesn't matter. And again, from the, what we know about the plasticity, and the ability of the brain to rewire or recover function. Again, size is not really an issue there. Gotcha. I was just about to ask if it went back to the plasticity thing. Cool. It does go back to plasticity, yes. Awesome. Thank you. So there's probably not a lot of appendix like, what the hell does this do, and is it a vestige stuff going on in the brain, is there? Or is, it, is it efficient? I mean... It is. I really like to talk about certain things uh, where 
people say, oh, we only use 10% of our brain. <laughs> and that's not true. We use a lot of our brain all of the time. And at no time is a brain area totally inactive. If it were inactive, it would be dead tissue that basically is caused by a stroke or is caused by a head injury. And But we also know that when brain areas are too active, that's a problem too. And we see that with epilepsy. Epilepsy, an epileptic seizure is the result of too much brain activity and it's too synchronous. It's all happening exactly the same time in exactly the same pattern and that generates an epileptic seizure. So in reality, what's going on with the brain is high levels of activity, low levels of activity, that process. And sometimes it looks like waves. You can there are functions you can do that says, okay, what part of the brain is active? And you see it moving across the brain surface or across the brain structures because of the fact that different brain areas have to be involved at different times. That was part one of a two-part interview with neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts. You can read Ted's article, Are We Just Wired Differently, at the Bain.com website or in the free nonfiction 2016 ebook collection at Bain eBooks. Check out part two of the interview next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Did we just drop a treasure ship in 5,000 feet of water? Faith said. Please tell me we didn't drop a treasure ship in 5,000 feet of water. Yeah, you did. James Michael, call me Mike, Dugan, assistant engineer had been found hiding in one of the yacht's cavernous storage lockers, along with a female Indonesian cook named Eka Sari. They'd been brought up on deck and were sipping soup in a relatively undamaged portion of the promenade. We could hear them talking about it, Sari said softly, when they were speaking English. It wasn't real clear that Sokoro had taken over at first, Dugan said. Mick was always sort of standoffish with the crew, but then Socorro took over his cabin, and the Africans started going nuts. Mick had brought a bunch of his friends and execs along. And women? Steve asked. Yeah, Dugan said. Lots of girls. Mick hadn't been seen for a week. I mean, I didn't interact with guests, but... I did, Sari said. And there were questions. All of Mr. Mickaberg's food was being taken to him by security, for his safety. Then, Socorro had all the guests brought up on deck, and the Africans separated out the men and women. 
And the women who were older, Dugan said. And the Africans shot him, right in front of God and everybody. Told us if we didn't follow his orders, we'd get the same. Then the party started, he said, glancing quickly at Sari, and then away. Rape, Sari said, looking at the deck. Much rape. Told you Sikora was batshit, Fontana said, shrugging. I think he hired the Africans because they were the only guys he could find as fucked up as he was. Then people started going zombie, Dugan said, and it really hit the fan. There was some sort of a split in the gang. We heard Sikora was killed. The leader of that faction, guy named Malloy, went zombie, and the Africans, those that hadn't turned, started loading the away boat. With, like every bit of treasure they could get their hands on. And there was a lot. It was about that time that I went into the compartment and sealed the door. Turned out Sari was already there. I had hidden when the fighting broke out, Sari said. There was a pause there, Steve said. What pause? Dugan asked. Before you hid in the compartment, Steve said. You skipped a step. I sort of locked the engines down and turned off the lights, Dugan said, grinning thinly, and locked down the engine room doors. I was the last surviving engineering officer. That's what got them to leave the ship. No lights, no power, drifting. I figured turn everything off, lock it out, hide in the compartment, wait for them to leave, and then come out. Good plan, Fontana said dryly, except for the zombies. Yeah, them. Dugan said, shrugging. Thanks for clearing them off. Mr. Dugan, you know the laws of salvage, Steve said. Any live survivors means it's not salvage. Our approach is slightly different. We allow survivors equal shares on all portable wealth of the boat. The boat is property of the flotilla as well as half of the materials. We give, when there is a survivor or survivors, who can run the vessel, we generally allow them to keep it if they want to join the flotilla, or if we don't need it. In the case of this, let's say we'll be extremely lenient in that regard. But if, as you've indicated, it's still probably functional and has some fuel, I think this we may need. So that sort of makes you pirates, Dugan said. Needs must is the best I can say, Steve said. Okay. Flip it around. You take the boat. It's not salvage. It's not entirely clear, by the way. Are you going to finish clearing it? Uh, Dugan said. Can I get some help? No, Fontana said. I mean, face it, you already did. So, even passing that, Steve said, your stores will eventually run out. Where are you going to get more? Where are you going to get fuel? You can't run this without support. Fontana said. On the other hand, Steve said, we can't run it at all. You and a Coast Guard petty officer are the first qualified engineers we've rescued. I doubt that however many manuals she reads, my wife can even start the engines on this thing. Not the way I buggered the computer control she can't, Dugan said. So obviously we need your cooperation, and I hope support, Steve said. This is well set up to be a floating command and support ship. We need somewhere to put the refugees, 
give them a few days' rest before we give them the choice of helping or being put into Coventry. You can get into Coventry? Dugan said. There are two sailboats we floated in Bermuda Harbor, Fontana said, which is filled with sharks that have gotten used to snacking on uncoordinated zombies. Anybody who doesn't want to help out, we drop on those. They're hellholes, really, but there's nothing else to do with them. Most of them are less sick, lame, and lazy than tired and afraid of the sea, Steve said, shrugging. There's no great benefit to their eyes to bouncing around in tiny boats in a big sea. I think that some of them would probably go for being on this one, even if it's not in the big room. Cleaning this up, Dugan said, shaking his head. When I went to ground, it had gotten bad, but not this bad. That's the price of getting out of Coventry, Steve said, grinning mirthlessly. And the price of remaining out is continuing to provide support to a reasonable standard. I can run the engines, Dugan said. For as long as they hold out, and they're good, don't get me wrong, and new. But I can't con this thing. Where are you going to get a captain? What do you think? Despite her surname, Geraldine Miguel could have been from Missouri. She had that Midwestern look. Blonde hair, blue eyes, Scandinavian facial structure. She was actually from Texas, a ninth-generation family that went back to the pre-Republic days. Most of the line, however, was Germanic rather than Hispanic, which explained the looks. I think it's going to take a hell of a lot of crew, Geraldine said, looking around the still dark helm. And one hell of a lot of cleanup. I have a cunning plan for that, Steve said, as the lights came on and the panels started to light. Which involves, Geraldine asked, using an enemy. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, Christopher Ciafani, and Rachel Mintel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an ionic spark straight to the amygdala of gratitude and plaudits, plus a left brain hoorah and a right brain you said it, mister, to Dr. Ted Roberts and his nonfiction article, Are We Just Wired Differently?, which you can find at Bain.com. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.